now things aren't quite the same. That was then and things are now, well, well, they're no longer riding on a spiritual high that seems to characterize new believers. The hunger for God's word has waned somewhat. You feel it more a duty to read your Bible in a quiet time on a weekday morning. Prayers, a bit of a chore. You actually can't remember the last time you prayed outside of a Sunday service. You now trudge along to church. Your mind taken away by other things that happened that week. You just don't feel like singing anymore. And as for telling others about Christ, well, you can't quite remember the last time you did that. Rather than being on a spiritual high, you've become spiritually weary. And you've lost the joy that comes with being a follower of Christ. Now, I wonder if you can identify with any of that, at least in parts, or perhaps all of it. And I think those of us who are Christians here can testify to experiencing these, part, these um, spiritual weariness at some point in our Christian life. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. Well, if you are, then welcome. We really are glad you're here with us this morning. But maybe you just find it all a bit weird. Why do these Christians love to read an ancient text that surely has no relevance for us today? Why do they pray to some God who you can't see? Why do they sing songs together in the daylight where they can actually see each other and hear each other sing? It's just all a bit weird. Well, can I encourage us all, whether we're followers of Christ or not, to keep on listening? Because I believe that God has something very important to say to us this morning. So why don't you pick up your Bible once again, and this time let's turn to Isaiah chapter 43. You'll find that on page 730 of the guest Bible, 730. Isaiah chapter 43, and we'll take it from verse 22. Mm. And as we do that, why don't I pray? Our Lord and Father, we do thank you so much that you're a God who has revealed to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, for the Bible and what it says about who you are and also what it says about who we are, Lord. We pray this morning as we come to study your word, you'll give us hearts and ears to receive your word, Father. May we be malleable to it, Father, and change us the way we have to be changed. In Jesus Christ's precious name, amen. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 22. Yet you have not called to me Jacob, this is the Lord speaking, you have not wearied yourselves for me, Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not brought any favorite clamors for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of, the te of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. 
He who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars and perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It was used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meats. He eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel, even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot say himself or say, is this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. 
Your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is God's word. Well, here we pick up our series in Isaiah. And here we see the Israelites perhaps not worshipping God as they ought. Indeed, as they were created and formed to do. A bit of context for you. Previously, the past couple of weeks, we've seen how God was going to wipe out the Babylonians who had carried off the Israels into exile. We saw how God was still demonstrating his faithfulness and mercy to his people despite Israel's unfaithfulness to him. But this is despite them that they have still not called on God. They are not offering the sacrifices the way they ought to. Yes, they were still worshipping. Yes, they were still offering sacrifices and rituals, but they weren't doing it with the correct motivation. You see, the motivation for doing so was not coming from inner repentance. It was not carried out with, <coughs> excuse me, heartfelt devotion. See, as you hear, are merely just going through the motions. This worship for them had become a substitute for repentance and heart devotion. Israel had managed to turn an act of redemption into a weariness act of burden and demands. And if Israel had grown weary with this, look at how God has grown weary with this all the more. See, God was not after the rituals. He was not after the sacrifices. God was after his people. He was after their hearts. He was after their repentance. See, the rituals and offerings were a mean for an unholy people to enjoy fellowship with a holy God. The rituals represented a life surrender to God as a result of what God was going to do through his son to make that fellowship possible. Now, one thing as we're studying the Old Testament together is to remember this one thing. We are not them. Okay, we are not Israel, but we are like them. Okay, we're not them, but we are like them. And this morning, while we may not be wearying God with meaningless sacrifices and rituals, we can still engage in a wearisome form of worship that is empty and devoid of inner repentance or heartfelt devotion. Ask yourself this question. Why are you here this morning? What was your motivation for coming to church? Was it because you desired to be with God's people to praise and worship his holy name? Was it because that's just always what we do? So Sunday morning, 10 o'clock comes around, we leave the house and go to church for half past 10. Maybe you're here this morning because you feel like somehow it's earning God's favor. Your attendance here is a means of balancing out the bad things that have happened this week. Maybe you see it as a suitable replacement for any heartfelt repentance. Well, if our motivation is anything other than seeking to glorify God, then maybe we have become weary worshippers. Maybe you've been sitting here this morning and going, I just don't feel it. You know, your minds wandered as we sang the songs. You stared at your feet or looked around you as we prayed. You skimmed over the words when we read the Bible because they're just empty words. If that's describing you, then ask yourself, 
has worship become a wearying formality? With no signs of inner repentance or heart devotion, are we just going through the motions? I think right now, we've just moved into a wonderful new building. I think perhaps as a church, we're right now experiencing a spiritual high. But there is always a danger that one day we would become spiritually weary. When the new building starts to wear off, when our zeal and exuberance for reaching the lost of Edinburgh begins to wane. And that is important that we recognize this. And it's important we guard against this because if we don't, if we see worshiping God as a wearisome burden, we will quickly start looking to worship other things. Things other than God. And that's exactly what we have happening here with the Israelites. You see, a consequence of Israel's weary worship was turning to idol worship. Now, if you've been with us over the past uh, few weeks as we've gone through Isaiah, you would see Isaiah has been laying out the case against idols. He's shown us how they're powerless. They have to be nailed down or else they'll topple over. We've seen the uselessness of idols. They're unable to predict the future or even say anything at all. Isaiah concludes that idols are nothing are less than nothing, utterly worthless, and are all false. And in chapter 42, Isaiah says that those who trust in idols are blind. Now, Isaiah has been laying out such a strong case because idol worship was a root problem for Israel, God's chosen people. They had wandered away from God and had come to worship false gods, idols, rather than exclusively worship the one true God. That was the reason why they got sent off into exile in the first place. So Isaiah has been spelling out to Israel the worthlessness of idols. And here he really starts to drive the point home. Here Isaiah shows us the absurdity of idols. Look with me at uh, verse 12. Isaiah demonstrates the subtlety of idol worships by taking us through the creation of an idol. So 44... Uh, verse 12, it says, a blacksmith takes a tool. Okay, he works it with all his tools, all his might, all his strength. He puts all his time, all his energy into making this idol. So much so that he starts to lose his strength. He grows faint. Now in verse 13, we have the carpenter. Carefully measuring out the lines. Meticulously using his compass to make sure everything is just right. And what is a blacksmith and the carpenter left with after all their effort. An idol shaped in human form. Human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. Verse 13. And that's it. An idol that so much effort has gone into making only ends up being less than the people who created it. Because nothing that is created can ever be greater than the one who created it. And these idols' creators, craftsmen, only human beings. As I says, such idol makers are nothing. They're blind and ignorant. And their idols, too, are nothing. They are blind and ignorant. Nothing can be greater than the creator. It's a bit like a four-year-old girl painting a picture of her mum. Okay, imagine that. A picture of a mum painted by a four-year-old girl. We may look at it and go, oh, that's lovely. What is it? Is it your mum? Your dad? A tornado? I'm not sure. 
But nevertheless, the parents all fawn over it. They get teary-eyed, this lovely picture, and they might put it up on the fridge. But what if the little girl started to stubbornly ignore her mum because she loved her drawing so much? What if the daughter spurned her mum and only talked to her awful depiction of her mother instead of being affectionate and cute and adorable? The girl's artistic pursuits are suddenly ignorant and offensive. And that's exactly what the Israelites are guilty of here. They spurned their creator for a mess of creation. And that was ignorant and it was offensive. Isaiah goes further here to show us the absurdity of idols. Go with me to verse 17. See, here he shows us again how the idols are made, okay? The idol maker, he plants his trees. The rain comes, he lets it grow, then he cuts it down, then he makes a fire, he cooks his food over it, he warms himself, and then he takes the other half and he makes an idol. A block of wood becomes his God. From the very same wood that he cooked a meal over and burned to keep himself warm, he then prays to this block of wood and says, you are my God, save me. Now that's absurd, isn't it, when you think about it? Can we begin to see the absurdity of idols as I wants us to see here? Can we begin to see the worthlessness of idols? Now, it's very easy for us to sit here and go, well, that is absurd. Israelites were clearly foolish to bow down to some block of wood and say, you are my God. Humanity has clearly moved on since then. We in the 21st century, well, we don't do that anymore. We're now enlightened. Really? The reason I've not been with you for the past five weeks is because I've just done a trip to Southeast Asia and I can tell you that idol worship is very much still alive. I lost count of the number of temples and shrines my wife and I visited because that's pretty much what you do in Southeast Asia. And I lost count of the number of Buddhas and Vishnus that we saw. And I lost count of the number of people who were bowing down to these idols, offering their money, offering incense and praying to them saying, you are my God, save me. Two thoughts always struck us. Actually, no. Three thoughts always struck us when we saw an idol. The first was, it's nice and cool in here. Why don't we stay in here and get the sweat to stop dripping off us? The second thought was just how dusty they all were. It really was quite remarkable how dusty and how the paint were flaking off all of them. We asked someone, one of our guides, if they ever got cleaned, and he said, yes, but once a year, someone has to go up to the top of the shrine with a duster and dust the idol. That's absurd, isn't it? The gods need dusted. The second thing that we thought was, how can these people not see? How can they be so blind? How can they be so ignorant not to see that that is just a block of wood that they are worshipping? That is just a block of wood that they are bowing down to. Well, it was very easy for us to say that over there. But what isn't so easy is when we came back home and we failed to see the idols in our own lives, our own blocks of wood. You see, idols are very easy to identify when they're 80 feet long reclining Buddhas or when you're standing in a cave with over 4,000 of them round about you. But idols are not just contained to shrines and temples. They're not only found in statue form Idols are also found in our homes, in our offices, 
Idols are found in our well-educated hearts. You see, for us in the West, an idol is not a statue or an image. No, an idol is anything that's taken the place of God as the center of our worship. An idol is anything that we place our trust in instead of trusting in God. An idol is anything we love more than we love God. An idol is anything we want more than we want God. An idol is anything we enjoy more than we enjoy God. An idol is anything we desire more than we desire God. And these idols can be anything from a brand new iPhone to a new spouse. Could be having well behaved children to the acceptance of your peers. And these idols are just as worthless, just as dangerous as the idols you read in Isaiah. In fact, perhaps more so. Because you see, when an idol, when a block of wood is missing, we can very easily convince ourselves that the idol is missing too. So the question is not whether or not we have 20. The question is not whether or not we have idols in 21st century Edinburgh. The question is, do we recognize them? And here's a sentence I would like you to complete. I got this from Tim Keller. If you want to identify an idol in your life, ask yourself this question. I will feel happy and my life will have meaning if. I will feel happy and my life will have meaning if. Have a go at answering that right now. How do you finish that sentence? If I had a new car, if I graduated first class honors degree, if I get a house extension, if I get married, if I have kids, if I achieve the standards I've set myself, if I receive the acceptance of others, if I have good health, if my life is fair, if that political party was in power, I will feel happy and my life will have meaning if. Now, there are many, many things I'm sure we can answer that sentence with. Now, not one of these things are bad in and of themselves. But when the desire to have them becomes greater than the desire to have God, then we have a problem. Then we fall into idol worship. How can we be so blind? How can we be so ignorant as not to see the idols in our lives and the absurdity of them? Well, this morning, not only do I want our eyes to be open to the absurdity, the folly, the worthlessness of idols, but more than that, I want our eyes to be fixed, to be focused upon the glory, the awesomeness, the power of the one true God. I want our hearts to be gripped by the redemption that is now ours through Christ. You see, look with me at how God deals with Israel's problem, okay? Their problem of weary worship, their problem of idol worship. How does God solve this problem? Well, go with me first to chapter 44, verse 6, okay? First of all, who does God tell us that he is? 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first, and I am the last. See, here, unlike the idols, God is telling us that nothing created him. He is the first and the last, God does not have a creator. So there is no one greater than he in all of creation. There is no one like him. Keep going in verse 6. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. God is not telling us here that he is the God of gods or the greatest of all the gods. No, God is telling us he is the only God. There is no 
other gods. All other gods are false. Buddha, false. Vishnu, false. Allah, false. Any other person or thing we can possibly concoct to be a god for us, false. God is the only true God. And if we compare this one true God to the idols, it hardly seems worth it. There's no way these idols are going to win. There's just even no context. God has wiped the floor with them. See, Israel themselves were living proof that God outperforms all other idols. See, look with me at verse 7. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Do not proclaim this and foretell it long ago. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? In other words, God is saying, come on then, idols. Bring it. Did you predict the future? Did you know what was going to happen? No, you couldn't even speak. I predicted the future. I predicted that Israel would be carried off into exile. I predict they'll come back from exile. Not only did I predict it, but I am the God behind it who made it happen. Unmatchable power we see here in Isaiah. And the fact that people of Israel were still there, well, that was testament to this awesomeness of God. But as we go further into this, the more glorious wonderful truths we learn about the character of this one true almighty God. Back to my question, how does this one and only God, who is greater than all creation, respond to Israel's unfaithfulness? We see God is a God that's also full of compassion, a God who is full of mercy, a God who is full of grace. And the first thing we see of how God responds is in verse 26. Uh, 43, verse 26. 25, sorry. You see, despite all of the Israelites' sin and offenses that Israel had been piling up, God chooses to blot out Israel's transgression, to remember their sins no more. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. It's because of who God is, it is for his glory that he chose to do this. And yes, some in Israel did face destruction, some did face disgrace and scorn, but not all of them. He spares them from complete destruction. Keep going with me to chapter 44, verse 1. But now, listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says. He who formed you, who made you, who formed you in the womb, who will help you, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, who I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my, my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. See, can we see how God here is offering spiritual renewal? See, not only does God spare his people from abandonment and destruction, God goes further than that and promises them spiritual renewal. And what a beautiful depiction it is here we've just read there. This water being poured out into dry ground, where there was once parched and cracked land, 
there is now thirst quenching water. Where there was dry ground, there is now flowing streams. Where there was withered grass, there is now a lush green meadow. Where there was once death, there is now life. So what has God done in response to Israel's unspiritual unfaithfulness? When they keep him with his character, God promises them a spiritual renewal, a spiritual renewal based on who he is, the God who redeems. God offers them redemption. The redeem or redemption means the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil. And that's exactly what God has done for his people Israel here. He redeemed Israel from the bondage and captivity of slavery in Egypt. He's going to redeem them from the exile under the Babylonians. And ultimately, God will redeem his people through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. You see, I think one of the real beauties as I've been studying this passage this week is to see that this spiritual renewal is not just promised to Israel there and then. It's not just limited to them. Look with me at 44 verse 5. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by that name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. You see, what God is promising us here is that people from outside of Israel, outside of his people, will one day become part of God's people. Will one day belong to the Lord's. And this is one of the key messages of the book of Isaiah. Salvation will one day spread to those outside Israel too. And because of this wonderful truth, this spiritual renewal promised by God and Isaiah is a reality for us 21st century idolaters. A reality made possible by the cross. When you think of the idols we've chased after this week, when I think of the idols I've chased after this week, how I was offensive towards God, who I turned to this mess of creation rather than turning to the creator to worship him. When I read this, the spiritual renewal that God promises despite my unfaithfulness, despite my sin, and it's freely available to me because of what Christ done upon the cross. Jesus Christ died for sinners such as us, Charlotte Chapel. Jesus Christ died for a daughter such as us so that we may experience this life changing spiritual renewal so that we may longer be in sin and death and we can have eternal life with him. Isn't that amazing? We don't deserve it. But God has chosen to redeem us. God has chosen to give us a spiritual renewal to become his to belong to us. Here I am, weary in my worship, not wanting to sing songs, not wanting to pray, not wanting to open my Bible, and here is God, here is Jesus dying on the cross for me. So that my heart can become from a heart of a notorious sinner to a notorious believer. So my heart can go from being gripped and idol to being gripped by the awesomeness of God, the one true God. It's incredible. So how do we receive this life-giving spiritual renewal? 
How do we receive this forgiveness and redemption from our spiritual rebellion? We'll look with me at the end at chapter uh, 44, verse 21. Remember these things, Jacob. For you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like morning mist. And here we go. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Here God has called the Israelites to remember the futility, the absurdity of idols, remember who he is, and return to him, the God who redeems Here is God calling us today in 21st century Edinburgh to return to him, the God who redeems. What does that mean? Well, the first thing we have to do is recognize the idols in our lives. We've already started that today. Remember the sentence, my life will have, I will feel happy, my life will have meaning if, how do you finish that sentence? And as we ask ourselves that question, pray that God would open our blind eyes so that we may see the idols in our lives so we would not be so ignorant as to seek salvation where there is no power to save, to seek redemption where there is only captivity. And recognize who we are, a thirsty people, desperate in need of the forgiveness that can only be found in our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Pray that we will be drawn more and more towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and come to him in repentance and faith. Repentance means being sorry for rejecting God and choosing to follow idols instead. And it means turning away from them and turning to the merciful God in heartfelt, God-centered, humble repentance because that is the only way that we can be free from these worthless idols. And put your faith in something that is worthful, that's worthwhile, it's worthy, that Put your faith in something that is powerful to save. Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Jesus Christ, who took upon himself our rebellion, our sin, our adultery, and died in our place upon that cross, so that we may not face destruction and death, but rather we can enjoy eternal life. We read in the passage on John 4, read earlier on today, what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman by the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them, will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life, spiritual renewal. Our weariness to God will turn to a longing to be his. We will want to write on our hands the Lord's and belong to his people. What a transformation. What a renewal is on offer here. My time is almost up. But maybe you're not a Christian here today. Maybe you've never come to the God who redeems. Well, this morning, I hope you'd have seen a glimpse of the one true God. I hope you have begun to understand why, as we do love to read the Bible, love to pray, love to sing songs on a Sunday morning. And I hope this morning you too will experience this life change and spiritual renewal that is on offer here. Your idols aren't going to satisfy you. Trust me, I've tried. You're not going to find redemption anywhere else. Be that husbands and cars and jobs and work and money and whatever. The Bible tells us you'll only find it in Jesus Christ. So come to him in repentance and faith. 
If you want to know more, then please do ask the person who brought you. Please come ask me. I'll be standing at the door. I'd love to talk to you more. And maybe you are, this morning, you're the Christian I described at the start. The Christian becomes spiritually weary. We'll hear the God of forgiveness, the God of mercy, the God of grace is calling his people back to him to return to him, to experience this wonderful spiritual renewal. So the question is, will you return to the God who redeems? Will you return to the God who redeems in repentance and faith? Because if you do, the God who redeems will forgive you. He will blot out your transgressions. He will remember your sins no more. The God who redeems, who made you, who formed you, who chose you, will pour out his spirit upon you like water poured on dried, thirsty land. And you will experience that spiritual renewal. The God who redeems will redeem you. The Bible tells us that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Do you want to experience the amazing grace that God offers us here through his son, Jesus Christ? Then let go of worthless idols and return to the God who redeems. Let's pray.